We've got a special guest preacher today, which I'm very excited. So Ron, if you want to come on up. Um, and we've got Barb, who's doing the scripture reading. You want to both join me up here? Um, Ron is one of our elders on our team and brings just a, an extraordinary depth of compassion and wisdom. Uh, former pastor himself and now leading with a, an organization called Orphan Helpers. He's had lots of time behind the, uh, the pulpit or bar table in, in, other, um, in, in our context here. And so it's really exciting to hear from you today as we continue our series, The Blessed Battle, um, on the Beatitudes as we uncover what Jesus means to be blessed when things are challenging, when things are hard. And so each week we start off by reading through the Beatitudes just to refresh our memory of what those things are. So we're going to start off uh, with Barb reading through that, and then we're going to kick it off with... Um, with Ron doing our sermon series today. So if you want to come on up, Barb, and do our reading. This is from the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who persecute, who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, first of all, another quick announcement. Uh, this is October, which is Pastors Appreciation Month. For those of you who may not be aware, we have a lot of pastors at our church. Uh, Josh serves pretty much full-time, or is full-time with us. Uh, Pastor Ben works half-time with uh, Habitat for Humanity. And Pastor Dave works uh, part-time as a real estate photographer. And that's how we're able to support uh, those. Sarah is also a pastor. Uh, she works full-time with the nonprofit organization, Sparks. And then also we have Alicia with our children's ministry, uh, children's pastor, who we pay a, a, a small amount of support for her great work. What I would like for you to do, and I know this in 42 years of pastoring churches, that words of appreciation do mean a lot. Sometimes it's a lonely job. Sometimes it's a hard job. And sometimes uh, there are many challenges in pastoring. And so this month, if you would take time to write Josh, Ben, Dave, Sarah, Alicia, notes of thanks, that would be wonderful. And if you would like to give a small gift, you can place that in the, the joy boxes. You can send it online and designate it, or you can even hand it to myself or our elder Mike Salisbury. We're collecting these gifts uh, so we can give gift cards to our pastors as well. It does mean a lot to these, to these folks as they lead uh, our congregation. Well, today we are talking about the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I'm entitling this passage, Power Under Control. And you'll see what that 
why I've chosen that in just a moment. You know, we live in a time uh, that's pretty crazy in our culture. It is, uh, it is not a time that we see a lot of meekness or kindness or gentleness. It is a time of hostility and brokenness. Uh, we are members of an upside-down kingdom, as we have been talking. The Christian counterculture is really what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are about when we look at it. And I would suggest, uh, as Tim Mackey did, and who is the, the uh, Bible Project guy, in his sermon on Matthew, that in some ways, Christians are supposed to drive on the wrong side of the street. If you go to UK, and you, you have to drive on the left side, and we know that's wrong, right? You know, it's the wrong side of the road to drive on. And uh, for Christians, we're going the wrong direction of the, of the crowds. The culture has one kind of sense of power and direction, but along comes a whole different way of being that we call the kingdom of God, and we're gonna see that illustrated a little bit more today. Our culture attacks and attacks and criticizes and condemns those who disagree. It's I'll get you before you get me kind of culture. Every Democratic president is, is guilty before he takes office. Every Republican president is guilty before they take office. We don't try to understand or work together for solutions. We are an attack, angry uh, culture with a lot of anger and hatred and ill will. But meekness is our topic today. And it is difficult to understand this word and to live it out as well. So let's get some definitions. Dictionary.com describes meekness as docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame. So pastor, are you gonna tell me today that this is how we should be living in the kingdom of God? Merriam-Webster defines it as mild, deficient in courage, submissive and weak, and defines meek similarly as enduring injury with patience and without resentment, mild, to be deficit in spirit and courage and not violent or strong. However, it is important to understand that modern definitions are not necessarily the biblical ones. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for meek was anah, which refers to someone who is afflicted or bearing a heavy burden. It's a little bit like one of Webster's definitions. It is largely an explanation about the circumstance that someone is willing to endure rather than a state of living. This certainly applied to those in the crowd who were hearing Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount that we're talking about. In the Greek, the Greek word is prautes, which denotes a total lack of self-pride to the point of, uh, of a lack of self-concern. The poor and oppressed are often labeled as such, but not because they are beaten down, but as a result of their humility for their, their position in life. And therefore, sometimes they place a greater emphasis on serving others, helping others who are in similar predicaments. Another Greek term similar for meek is praus, which is expressed as a decided strength or disciplined calmness. In contrast to inherent anger, this leadership virtue toward followers demonstrates the benevolent compassion for those who are being led. I like to think of myself as a pastor for the years of being a man who was meek, but sometimes I wasn't. I'm not one who's angry a lot, but I let things build up, and don't ask my wife about this, please, but I can have a flashpoint of anger. And I don't like it about myself, and that's one of the things we keep working on 
even in our older years. There was an occasion that we had a gentleman in the church in Michigan where I was serving my last role as pastor who came by the church every day. He did a lot of nice things for us for the facilities, but he also brought a lot of negative things. He criticized everybody in the church. He criticized one staff member to another. He told racist jokes. My other pastor and I sat down with him more than once and encouraged him to change these behaviors, and they continued. And one day, the behaviors were directed a little bit more at me than I appreciated, and I, I lost it. I, I let him have it pretty good. And I don't feel good about that. In fact, though I apologize, I was never forgiven by he or his wife, and they took their resentment of me to the grave. It's not that I was wrong in what I had to say to him, it's how I said it. I did not say it with power under control, which is what meekness I'm going to define as. I said it out of anger. I said, I said it out of woundedness, my own pain, my own frustration, my own sense of rightness that he was wrong and I was right. And that is not what this is. So it helps you understand and illustrate from the negative side of what we want to understand about the power of meekness, of having power under control. So simply put, my definition for meekness is power under control. In Michigan, in the ministry, we, the other pastor spoke on this, and he used a, a, a video of a horse trainer training a stallion. And the time that it took, just patiently showing that horse that he was not going to go away and was not going to give in to the horse's rebellion, his kicking, his, his rising up against him, until finally, it took quite a while, walking that stallion around the ring that the horse began to drop his head and submit. They call it joining up, that, that the horse recognized that he was going to now acknowledge this man as his master, and he was going to live as he wants. And so a horse that is trained still has power, still has amazing strength and power, but they are trained to use that power as their, their master wants, whether that's cutting cows or, or uh, rodeo action or just going for a long ride. That horse becomes, in a sense, the servant of its master. It is not weak, it is still strong, but its power is under the control of the one it serves. For the Christian, then, we understand that meekness for us is to submit to the authority of God in our life, to live under his lordship, to make him our master. And Jesus says to the weak and the weary and the tired, come unto me for my yoke is not heavy, my burden is, is light and I will give you rest. When we are joined up with God, with the master, then we learn to live a life that is powerful and strong regardless of our circumstances. Before we go further, I think it's important, though, to step back a minute and talk again about the context in which these Beatitudes, these blessings of Jesus are given at the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Blessings were not new uh, in the Scriptures. Um, the book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1-1 with a blessing. Psalm 119 also Blessed if you live in a right relationship with God. Things go well. You are blessed. God will be with you. And then I'm going to share something that I got from Tim Mackey again from the Bible Project. He talked about a man who was called Jesus 150 years before the Jesus that we follow. There were many 
who claimed to be the Messiah throughout the history of Judaism. This Jewish scholar, writing in 150 BC, gave his own sense of, of blessings. He said, there are nine I would call blessed and a tenth my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who does not sin with the tongue. Blessed is the man who doesn't serve an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who, seeks to, who speaks to attentive listeners. And great, greatest is the one who finds wisdom. And none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now, at first glance, that looks like really good biblical stuff. You know, who doesn't want to fear the Lord? Uh, who doesn't want to control his tongue and not sin with his tongue? But on closer look at this, you see something very different. And this is important to understand the context in which Jesus is coming. Up until this time, it was the Pharisees and the teachers and the Sadducees, the scribes, who felt they were the ones who were blessed because they kept the law to perfection. And in this set of blessings, you hear that. This is, you're blessed if you're an important person, if people listen to you. You're blessed if you don't have to serve someone who you think is inferior to you. You don't have to lower yourself to serve someone who's not as good as you are. Blessed is the man who <laughs> can rejoice in the end because his enemies get what's coming to them. These, this is not what Jesus would say. This is not like Jesus at all. This is a very different kind of sense of blessing. The one who is blessed is the one who is in power. The one who has the great family and he has everything going for him. This is the one who is blessed and happy. And that's largely how our culture would look at it today in which we're trying to be a Christian counterculture. These Beatitudes are blessings that we're talking about from Jesus at first seem very simple. They sound like nice sounding words. Who doesn't want blessings? But when you really listen to them, they're very different. They're radical that Jesus gives to be poor in spirit. To, you're happy and blessed if you mourn. You're happy and blessed if you're meek, if you're lowly and despised in your culture. It, doesn't, it sounds crazy. It doesn't sound correct at all. So we're going to try to understand that a little better. And sometimes... In church history, we've taken the Beatitudes and treated them like a, a little set of, of virtues and values that we're to aspire to, and the ones who achieve these are going to earn God's approval. But it's not that at all. I want you to think about now who was in the crowd. There were actually, um, it's important to ask, who was in the crowd and, what, and on what occasion were they there? First of all, there were some that Jesus had specifically called to follow him. The fishermen in Matthew 4, they're described to us. As Jesus came along, the fishermen and spoke to them, they had probably been hearing his teachings already and knew something about him. And when he chose them and called them to follow him, they left everything to do that. Luke in his version, which is in Luke chapter 6, in his previous chapters also talks about the tax collector that Jesus calls. And he is the most despised in the culture and yet Jesus invites him to be part of his team. So there are those that Jesus specifically has called out, but we also think from looking at the whole of the Gospels that there was a large crowd of people who considered themselves disciples of this new rabbi and teacher. It may have been 150 or 200. There are different times that we see the larger groups of followers who would consider themselves disciples of Jesus. But on this occasion, there, were a, there was a huge crowd 
And who was in that crowd? According to Matthew 4, as Jesus has announced, the kingdom is at hand, it's near. And as he's healing the sick and the blind, then people begin to follow. And a large crowd in Matthew 5, as he gives these blessings, there's a huge crowd there. I want you to kind of, for a moment, just put yourself back in the first century as best you can. And thank you for yourself as a person who's living a subsistence level economy. You're just uh, able to gather wood for your fire and make enough food to go to the market to sell a few things. It's really day-to-day existence, just enough to eat, and you're ecking out a life of poverty. Maybe you're a, a servant of, of others. And some of you think of yourself that you're there with, with illness. You have leprosy, or you're paralyzed, or, and someone has brought you there, or you have all kinds of, of struggles. Maybe uh, you feel like you have demon possession within you, and you know that Jesus has been casting out demons already. And some of you are there because you are desperately lonely. You feel like you're not important, that no one cares about you. And so you hear this teacher, you hear about him. He's healing the sick, and he's offering, a, he's bringing in a new kingdom. It's different. The kingdom has been for the leaders, for the scribes and the Pharisees, for the people who have it all together, the wealthy and the powerful. That's the ones that have been blessed by God. We're forgotten by God. We're nobodies. We're poor and broken and sick. And then Jesus gathers us together and he says, blessed are you who are poor. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew says, poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Your lives are difficult. You have a lot of tragedy, you have a lot of pain, you have a lot of struggle in your life. But blessed are you. (laughs) Blessed are you who are lowly and despised, who are meek. What is he saying? This is radical. (laughs) He's turning things upside down. He's telling the people who have been pushed out of favor that you are now favored. That the kingdom of God has not been for you, but now you have first access to the kingdom. The kingdom is yours. We're providing it to you who are the most despised of culture, who are the most broken. It doesn't say they are there, but I think there's a third group that may have been present. And that's the Pharisees. They were following Jesus. And they were watching him closely. In Luke's gospel, he gives us four or five examples of brokenness before, before this. He talks about um, the different things that have happened. Uh, the healing of the paralytic. And Jesus' disciples were confronted because they were not fasting like the disciples of John the Baptist did. He confronts, uh, or the, excuse me, the Pharisees confront Jesus because he lets his disciples eat grain uh, in the fields on the Sabbath. How many of you have watched The Chosen? If you haven't, do, do watch The Chosen. I've seen a lot of religious dramas of the life of Jesus in the Bible, and they don't come close to the power and the reality of Jesus, I think that the chosen does. And they show this conflict that was developing between the the teachers of the law who thought, you have to do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And Jesus broke those rules, allowed his disciples to do it. He even calls a tax collector, and not only that, he goes to the tax collector's house and eats with the tax collector and other sinners, others who are rejected. They have been on the outside looking in, but now, These people that are there in that crowd today are called, and the Pharisees are not happy about it. 
They're standing off to the side with their arms folded, thinking, this is not right. They despised these people. They didn't want to be around them or touch them. They could not be in the same room with these sinners who God was obviously punishing for their poverty and their sickness. We're the good ones. They're the bad ones. We're the the favorite of God. They're despised of God. That was the Pharisees' attitude. So they are livid as they are watching what is happening. This is a radical teaching that we have. This is a radical day in which we are studying and learning as Jesus brings these messages. So I want to skip through to, I have some slides about faith, maybe the 13th slide back there, that uh, uh, I just picked this up. This was an old commentary, 1957. Not quite as old as I am, but you know, old is good. Just, just making that clear. Uh, and I, he has something I think that's, that's important here. The first three Beatitudes, we're on the third one. He sees as the beginning of faith. And I agree with him. Because the beginning of faith is to understand our need. We have a saying in Central America where I work with a mission with juveniles in prison in Honduras and El Salvador. And in the extreme poverty of Central America, I began to hear the phrase from some of our staff, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So you see what is happening here is the people who are on the outside of the religious, religiosity of the day are not, have not felt valued, have not felt like they could approach God and suddenly they're being invited in but they know their need. They know their need for uh, help. They know their need for a greater power in their lives. They are open and ready to receive. And so the beginning of faith is to be poor in spirit, to recognize your need. It is to, is to be mournful, to know that life is, is a struggle and hard and that you need help with it. And to be meek, to, to be lowly in, in mind. Now, the second slide talks about the progress of faith, the fourth beatitude, and I'm just putting this up quickly because those will be talked about in coming weeks where we become conscious of our spiritual need and condition. We begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the perfection of faith, uh, as we seek and grow in Christ, we we can be empowered to serve others, to be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. But I've experienced this among Christians from poverty in Central America that they are able, because of their meekness, because of their power and control, because of their sense of of, uh, submission to God and lowliness that God has lifted them up, they live with joy, they live with power, they are inheriting the earth by the the presence of God's power in their lives. They live with uh, mercy and they are peacemakers, they are giving people. There is a great joy among them that sometimes I think we've lost in the North American churches. And then the last slide on this one is that the trial of faith is the eighth beatitude where Jesus talks about being persecuted. And again, that will be covered later. So I'm just talking just for a few moments about what this means. First of all, about knowing our identity as Christ's followers. You know, I have been a Christian since I was a child. Uh, never not known Jesus. And there are times in which I didn't feel like I needed him. And there's sometimes I still tend to walk away a little bit. And if I can live life as I want to live it and 
on my own ideas and conditions. That's the human rebellion that's within us. But I don't stray very far until I realize I'm messing things up and I come back because I have learned that living in harness with Christ, being in submission to him, being under his yoke is the richest and fullest way to live. And I've shared with a friend who's a seeker who's just becoming a Christian that you can argue and talk and maybe not get all your questions answered, but I'm gonna tell you this, my testimony, that living in Christ, I have inherited the earth. That living in Christ, I have no regrets. When I follow him and live as he commands me to live, my life is rich and full and satisfying. I had to go to bed tonight at night knowing that I have lived within his will and there's a, a fullness and a joy that's there. When I step out, I quickly, not quickly sometimes, but eventually come back to my senses. Wow, I need to stay in the yoke and in the harness because it's the best way to live. That's my identity as a Christ follower. It's hard for us, I think, in our culture and we live in comparative abundance to remember how much we need God. Sometimes our strength, sometimes our success in life, and God wants us to be successful. He's not saying that poverty is good or that mourning is good or that we should be persecuted, that we should seek this. But what he is saying to those who have lived like that, that God is able to lift you up and to give you a richness of life that, you, that he wants you to have and that you deserve because you are his children. And we need to remember that when we are doing well, when things are going our way and we're on top, that ultimately, ultimately, when it's all said and done, it's whether or not I have lived as God has commanded and ordered that will bring the, the greatest joy and satisfaction. How many people have we seen with great riches and power at the end of life are miserable and lonely and broken because they have not lived a life that is truly satisfying as God has commanded? We also need to understand our power as servants of Christ, that it's in giving, it's in serving that, that we really find uh, ultimate joy. I'm going to um, just try to talk frankly a little bit about what I see happening in our culture, uh, even in the church and what we need to do. I feel like we have lost our way in the North American church. I feel like we have lost this sense of, of position as servants of Christ and we have become, oh, something different. Uh, it's been about success and power. And frankly, we've become very politicized. I have relatives who I would say, maybe read the Bible here, and watch Fox News this much every day. And the world becomes a political world. The world becomes about winning, about getting our way, about which side is going to ultimately get its laws passed. And we have lost the sense of who God calls us to be. We're to be servants in the world. We're to be the people of mercy and righteousness and purity of heart. The church was built, its greatest success in the first century was because these poor people became known for how much they loved each other and took care of each other and served each other. They were agents of goodness in the culture, not agents of hatred and violence. We've lost that. After World War II, the North American church grew abundantly. And part of that was because it was about serving and giving. 
In our history, in, in America, the church was often built. It built educational institutions. It built things like the Red Cross. It built all kinds of service and still does, you know, all kinds of missions in the world. And when the church is on mission, when it is fulfilling its calling, living this upside down kingdom, not following the way of the power of the world, but following the power under control way of Christ, when we're in harness with him, the church is powerful. Giving is powerful. Serving is powerful. Mercy is powerful. Forgiveness is powerful. We have power, but it's not in Washington, D.C. It's not in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And we have a role as citizens, but don't mistake our role of citizens with our role as citizens of God's kingdom. It's different. And I'm struggling with it. I've watched it now. I've been around for a while. And we're going the wrong direction. Many churches are dividing and splitting over political ideology and have lost our way as servants in the community. I just just did a funeral for a very good friend. Uh, We met coaching soccer, seven-year-old soccer. The only thing either one of us knew is you're supposed to kick the ball in that goal at the end. That was about it. Um, Gary and I became backpack partners with another gentleman, Larry. Uh, we did breakfast and lunch. He's, he was my best friend in many ways for over 40 years. He was a director of the Chamber of Commerce, and he was successful. He rose up to his last gig, was a small town on the West Coast uh, called Los Angeles. And, uh, but Gary, you would never know it. I mean, he was a Nebraska farm boy. He was a, he was a man of meekness. Interesting, in, the, in Colin's book, Good to Great, One of the qualities of the most successful CEOs is humility. Interesting. And Gary was like that. You would never know that he was a man of great influence, but he had great influence in cities where he worked in Lawrence, Kansas. How about those Jayhawks, huh? And in, uh, sorry, just slipped that in. Talk about an upside down kingdom. KU and K-State leading the Big 12 in football. I mean, the world has gone crazy, hasn't it? So... uh, I'm sorry, losing my my mind here. Uh, uh, (laughs) Gary, uh, I just, when I did his funeral and gathered all the sayings from people, it was amazing the the way people saw him. They called him a servant leader over and over, a team builder. Uh, Working for Gary was the best years of my life, many of his uh, co workers said. he made changes. He brought in LA, they created great transportation changes. He did education and business partnerships and education for the poor and for the, the underprivileged children. He made a huge difference, but you wouldn't know that. He never called attention to himself. <laughs> Interestingly, he sang. Uh, he got a, you know, an honorary doctor at Pepperdine and he, and he got all the kinds of awards and he sang four times at these uh, events with a beautiful voice. He sang The Gambler. <laughs> and the reason he sang it was, of course, was his philosophy of leadership. That you got to know when to push, when to play your cards, and when to fold them. He knew how to build teams. He knew how not to be forceful. He, was, he had power under control. He's a very powerful man in all that he accomplished, but a very humble man who knew how to work with people, how to listen, how to team build. So let me throw these things at you real quick here. An application. I'm just going to let the scripture speak to you. Uh, One application is that we're called to be servant leaders. Matthew 20 says it beautifully. 
Jesus called uh, them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Peter 5, 3, speaking to elders, says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. If you're in leadership, be a servant leader. Listen to the people you lead. Serve the people you lead. Earn their trust. Show mercy and compassion. Show the power under control of meekness. A second application is to be calm influencers. James 1, 19 and 20 says it well. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Calm influencers. Ron Goodman, slow down, be slow to anger. Maybe you struggle sometimes with that and you don't listen well enough. Maybe you're too quick to act, too quick to judge. Learn how to keep your power under control by being a listener and a careful person of action. A third application is to be gentle guides. And I've always loved Galatians 6, 1 through 5. That brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. What I didn't do with that gentleman up in Michigan. But watch yourself or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, now put that back in context of these Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek. That when he thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each should carry his own load. When you're critical, when you're judgmental of others, remember your own weaknesses. Remember that you can be criticized and judged back the same way. Be sensitive to that and come alongside others as fellow strugglers and fellow sinners helping one another carry our burdens. Ephesians 4 says, As a prisoner of the Lord then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is meekness. Power under control to love and come alongside others with gentleness. And then finally, the last point, application is overcoming evil. And this is desperately needed in our culture. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. It is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Boy, would that change social media? Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will have, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this happened in the civil rights era, the leadership of Martin Luther King. That's a long ways from storming the Capitol on January 6th. 
I don't want to just make it a political statement, but I want the church to understand its role and its power in this culture. We have power to overcome evil with good as servants of Christ. Meek, humble, but powerful when that power is under the influence and control of God. May, may God use you this week. May you inherit the earth as one who is meek. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.